restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment. To cry, to confide in a friend, to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to be in control falls away. Where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. And in my walk-in, we have the conversations you don't hear anywhere else. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm El Simone Scott. Welcome to the walk-in. El, it's Kristen. I'm standing outside your walk-in. Can you let me in for a second? Hello? Is this thing on? Anyways, I'm looking forward to seeing you. I want a big old hug. Uh, I want to talk about parsley. I want to talk about life. I want to talk about all the fun things um, that make us who we are and why we are such bad women. This conversation took place remotely, so please forgive some of the audio quality throughout. Kristen, I'm so honored to have you in the walk-in with me today. For those of you who live under a rock and don't know, uh, Kristen Kish is the executive chef of Arlo Gray in Austin, Texas. Uh, She's a Boston transplant by way of Michigan, like myself. Go glove. (laughs) She is the winner of season 10 of Top Chef, only the second woman to hold the title. That is should be an interesting story. So let's <laughs> let's get right into it. How you doing? I'm so good. How are you? It's nice to see your face. I'm really good. It's good to see you too. <laughs> and I, I'm really, you know, excited to talk food with you. Tell me a little bit about Arlo Gray and the inspiration behind it and the food that you serve there. Arlo Gray is my first restaurant. So after I left Boston and working for Barbara Lynch, who we all know and love. I took a break from restaurants and I was, you know, I was exploring, I was writing the cookbook, I was doing some television stuff. I was just kind of living the life that I never thought I would be able to live when I was working as an hourly cook. And Mm -hmm. so I was taking advantage of all these opportunities and all the time that I had to grow and explore. And restaurants were never really part of my thing. I was like, I love life. I don't have to deal with managing a bunch of people. I don't need to deal with the stress of like, if an order didn't come in, I don't need this in my life right now. And, you know, I was approached to open the restaurant in Austin. So I'd never been to Austin. I got on an airplane. And as soon as I landed in Austin, something felt very familiar. It felt exciting. It felt like I wanted to do it. And I think it was a combination of it being the right time and also the right project in the right city. So it all kind of came together. I threw myself 100% into it and I named it Arlo Gray because it was my first child. And that's what I would have named my first child, but I don't want human babies, but restaurant babies are cool. (laughs) I love that. I have been hearing some really good feedback about the menu items at Arlo Gray, things that make me excited because you know how I feel about my Midwest food Mm -hmm. staples, home of the TV dinners. But I want to know about your menu's connection to your Midwest food experience. You know, finding your food story and finding your food journey and how you want to translate your story into food is, is a long process because For so long, we work for other people creating their food. And all of a sudden, you get pushed into like this area where you're like, I think I can run my own restaurant. I think I can Mm -hmm. do it myself. Yeah. We have the skills and the technique to cook everything, but do we have a vision and a food story? And oftentimes, Mm -hmm. for me, I had a harsh reality figuring out, oh my God, am I ready? And so I created the first draft of the menu and it was all very cerebral, right? I was thinking of cool combinations and interesting things. And I started with that menu. It did well, but Mm -hmm. it did better as soon as I lent more into, well, Kristen, like, what do you want to say 
through your food? And how do you want to introduce yourself to the Austin market? And what Mm -hmm. better way to do that is to say, here's my comfort food to you to hopefully for you to be comforted by as well. So, you know, everything from inspirations and spins off of um, my beloved boxed hamburger and helper, which I Mm -hmm. love. I mean, hamburger helper is like, it's everything. It is amazing. It's everything. A hundred percent. To my love of, you know, Campbell's chicken noodle soup uh, mm-hmm. that I translated into the consomme and a, you know, a chicken farce with enulati and all that stuff. My hostess cupcakes and milk from school with my bag of potato chips. I translated that into a dessert. So I, I tapped into it. And whether people understand where it comes from or not, that mm-hmm. doesn't matter. But I, I swear, I believe that once someone can pick up on a flavor that's just a little bit like similar to your upbringing or someone else's upbringing. Yeah. All of a sudden you feel like you're being taken care of. And I feel like that's the goal of feeding people. If you had to pick one thing off of your menu that actually like, like that really represents you the most, like if you had to pick one thing that says, this is me on the plate, 100%, what would it be? Okay. So the hamburger helper we've talked about, that's, yes. that's there. It's one of the most popular. So the second most popular item on my menu is our crispy rice. I pulled um, my crispy rice dish from my love and admiration of the Persian crispy rice mm-hmm. to when I was in college, I would order crab fried rice in delivery to the crust of a bibimbap yes. to New England buttered crab rolls with bacon. So I took all these things and I mashed it into one thing. So it's a sushi rice cake um, that we sear in clarified butter. So it gets like this beautiful crust and like this Mm -hmm. really like puffy, crunchy rice uh, layer. Uh, And then it sits on top of a buttered crab, haricot vert and bacon kind of hache almost. Then we top it with a saffron aioli. Because mayonnaise belongs on everything in my world. Everything, everything. <laughs> and then we just do some fresh cucumber garnishes, scallions, and um, big sprigs of cilantro. So you mash it all together and you eat it like a really beautiful rice bowl. I wish y'all could even know how my mouth is watering. Right <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm hanging off of every word. <laughs> FIFO, first in, first out. Okay, Kristen, this is one of my favorite segments in the podcast. Did you know our podcast has segments? Did you know that? I, no, but I, li- I like a plan. I, I can too. appreciate it. <laughs> I knew, I know you will, and I know you will like this one because it's called FIFO. Can you tell us what FIFO means? Oh, first in and first out. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. come on. If you don't know that for your home either, now is the time to really... Now is the time where we kind of talk about your life, really. We talk about young Kristen growing up in Michigan, and then we kind of bring it back home to where you are today and the things that are influencing your life right now. So let's just take a little trip back in time. Yeah. I have heard that you really enjoyed the technical part of watching people cook. Like mm. we both have in common that we love Great Chefs of America. It's one of my oh, favorite shows so growing up. good. So good. And there's a lot of technical cooking happening mm-hmm. there. And it is it is very fascinating. Um, how did that translate in the kitchen for you as a young person? It translated and basically came out to be that I would take every ingredient from my parents' refrigerator, chop it up, completely bomb it in a pan, and end up with something completely not edible is what, <laughs> what happened. Because when we're watching those shows we're picking up on the technique and how they cut and how they mm-hmm. saute something and what it all sounds like. I feel like it was like an early, 
early onset thing for me of like an ASMR version of like listening to the cooking sounds, which I found really soothing. And so I would mimic everything they were doing, but because I couldn't taste it, I couldn't really understand what flavor profiles meant. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, I would go through the motions. I wouldn't ever really cook anything edible. My favorite spice was cumin because it was the one like adventurous spice in the spice cabinet that my mom yes. had outside of like salt and pepper and paprika. So I was like putting cumin on everything, cooking chicken until it was virtually sawdust, <laughs> cutting a lot of cabbage. I, that was uh-huh. like one of my first memories of cutting cabbage. But it's honestly, I'm glad that I went that route first because again, it's like the building blocks of the basics, understand the basics and you can progress forward. I was doing it because it was the one thing I think I took to that I found myself to be good at. And I think Mm. for me being a kid who was trying to fit in so desperately in all the different areas that when I found something I felt I was good at because I never really had the confidence to believe I was really good at anything, to be honest, Mm -hmm. I like stuck onto it. And it wasn't honestly until, I mean, my first year of regular university that I was like, wait a minute, hold on wait, you're telling me I can go to cooking school and I can cook for my job. Yeah. Like, holy, I didn't know that was an option. It was never on like the career test that you take in school. That's right. It sounds like for you, cooking was actually the thing that kind of led you to the path of knowing who you are. But before we go that far, I want to talk a little bit about that fitting in part. Mm -hmm. I know that You have a very beautiful adoption story. You were adopted um, by your lovely family. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if being a Korean child, and I'm pretty sure it was a predominantly white, you know, because Michigan is very white. Yes. It is what it is. I wonder how that lent to you really trying to figure out not only your identity as a young person or as a Mm -hmm. child, not looking like your family, but also as it relates to food. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, you know, being adopted was always part of my narrative, right? My Mm -hmm. mom, Kristen, you're adopted. And long before I even recognized what that word meant, I was like, I'm adopted. Like, I would say it like, my name's Kristen, (laughs) I'm adopted. Like, it it just (laughs) all came together. Yeah, I knew when I looked at my family that I did not look like them. And Mm -hmm. I knew what adopted meant. I did not come out of my mom's stomach. Yes. My parents and my family are like the greatest humans on earth. And so I think I was never, I never really thought of it being an odd thing. I knew it was different, but I never thought it was weird or odd. And I think it was my surroundings, my friends, my family. I had a harder time being able to fit in into the gender normal Oh, the heteronormative. Yes. Yes. Uh Uh Uh-huh. So I had a harder time there because Uh I knew what I felt and I knew who I was and I knew that I was very, very gay. I knew it from a very young age. (laughs) Very, very gay. I'm very, very gay. I mean, like so gay that I can't even tell you that I was even a little bit straight. Um, So I, I knew it, but I was so terrified. And my parents have always taught me, you know, be who you are, love who you want to love, like all that stuff. But you know, it's an internal battle that we have to decide that we are going to then step out of being normal Mm -hmm. to be abnormal now. And Mm -hmm. like, now we have to deal with what that feels like. And so I would, you know, I struggled a lot with putting the clothes that I thought I was supposed to wear on, doing yeah. my hair the way I was supposed to, pretending to date the boys, which I had boyfriends in high school and mm-hmm. college and all that kind of stuff. And trying to fit in that way, it that was the hardest part for me. And it was, it was so difficult that 
for a long time, I didn't know how to deal with it. And I didn't understand that I had another option. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I questioned everything. I questioned my being of how I was going to move through life holding this secret because I was like, I could never, I could never say it. There's no way Mm -hmm. I could ever live it. I prayed all the time just to turn into a boy because then it would be okay for me to be with a girl. And like Mm -hmm. that heaviness as a child was harder than being adopted like a gajillion times over. Sure. How long do you, did you carry that? Did that go through college? Like that mindset? I, know, I, I did know you not came come out. out. Yeah. Yeah. I, didn't, I was going to say you came out late, right? Way well, late, late. We'll say late, but you were 28 and you knew yeah. for so long since you were a child. That's a long yeah. time. Yeah. I knew the second probably puberty hit and that all of a sudden you develop feelings and like you understand what having a boyfriend and her girlfriend meant at a young yes. age. And it was late because I had like small, I guess, relationships, I guess, mm-hmm. like in college and, you know, as I was growing up, but I never was like publicly out or open or the words I'm gay never came out of my mouth. Sure. And it wasn't until I had met my ex-girlfriend who was mm-hmm. like my first like real relationship that I was like, okay, now I feel like I owe it to her and I owe it to myself to do that. Yeah. And so she was actually the catalyst for me mm-hmm. to be able mm-hmm. to come out, which I'm, I'm so grateful for that. I I can definitely relate to that. I remember thinking to myself that I would never come out. I I wouldn't come out to my family until or unless I thought I had met the person I was going to spend my life with. Like, you know, because I also have my own personal theories about coming out. I never, I always say heterosexual people or people who identify as heterosexual Mm -hmm. never have to announce that they are heterosexual, you know? And I just felt like the double standard for people who were not living what is considered like heteronormative lives had to do the same things that people who did not, you know, like I I still take issue with that in a, in a big way. And, you know, so when I say coming out late, I definitely just meant like later in age as, as it relates to your personal awareness, Um, because for the record, I don't think anyone needs to come out of anything they don't want to come out of. It's, it's right. your personal business, right? And so there's that. But I want to talk a little bit about identity, like presenting, how you mm-hmm. present. Because you mentioned your clothes as a, a teen, you know, like figuring out what that should look like for you. I know that you got into modeling, mm-hmm. but I can imagine that a lot of decisions about how you present into the world came about during that time. Yeah, I've always been very tall and very thin. I was always very like awkward, young, skinny, like tall Asian girl, which again, in Michigan is a very rare thing to see a five, <laughs> nine, right. super, super skinny, like lanky, awkward girl walking around with like hair down to her back. Mm-hmm. So I re- we were shopping in the mall and a scout came up of a local agency and he said, hey, so, you know, my name is, are you interested in modeling? And because I was so, again, so desperately trying to fit in and to feel like I belong somewhere and I needed external validation because I could not internally validate myself because I could not be who I am and mm-hmm. who I'm supposed to be and who I wanted to be, that external validation was gold to me. Yeah. And so being able to say, oh, I'm a model or I was in the newspaper, or, I was in the, like that was that, that provided some level of confidence that I so desperately was seeking. You know, I started out, I hit like the local newspaper, did a couple little things here and there. And I remember the first casting of a fashion show I went to, downtown Grand Rapids. We had to go to the Amway Grand Hotel. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a sea of girls who like, I swear, probably all really wanted this job. And I was like, oh my God, like, why am I here? <laughs> I'm super anxious, social anxiety. Like you have no idea. Um, I manage that to this day. And mm-hmm. so I was sitting in this room and they're like, okay, you come on. And so it was my turn to like, go walk. And I'm, you know, in flip flops, you know, I have no idea right. how to walk and heal. <laughs> and so I do my walk and then they get the, I get the call back and they're like, it was for a Paul Mitchell hair show. They're uh-huh. like, Paul Mitchell wants to, or they want to book you for this show. And I was like, oh my God. And instead of crying tears of joy, I broke down in tears of oh. being absolutely terrified. Yeah. And my mom was like, oh my God, oh my God, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. We can say no, like all this stuff, whatever, whatever. So I pulled out of that one. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then for all the other reasons, because I was still trying to search for validation, eventually that agency was like, Hey, we want to send you to Chicago. We want you to meet with elite model agency, which is an international agency. Right. I was like, okay. So I go, I do the headshots I do all the stuff and I sign with them. And again, another little runway school thing. So I show up in my flip flops and my Abercrombie jeans and (laughs) um, I do the walk. And I was like, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I don't belong here. This is not, this is not for me. Yeah. Um, and so I pulled myself out of it again and I kept getting pulled back into it. And eventually, like I, I realized which ones I could pick and choose that would make me feel okay. Yeah. So eventually I did find my way out of that, but it definitely took me rising in my culinary career to allow mm-hmm. that to kind of take a backseat because yeah. I was rising and finding confidence in one area and letting the other one that was superficial and artificial. And I was letting that go. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about Chicago and culinary school and your time there. I know that you've been very transparent about having had some time with drug use Mm -hmm. and alcohol. And, you know, where did that stem from? Were those, is that like a continuation of you seeking personal validation or outward validation? It was certainly a continuation of me trying to fit in. And Mm -hmm. so when you go to college, you're supposed to be, you want to like go out, like I'm living in the big city and I'm like going to school and I'm not living at home and I have no rules anymore. And so I've never been a big drinker, right? And so Mm -hmm. in order to keep up with my friends, I learned that some drugs can allow you to keep up Mm, in a way that I felt like I was on par with all my peers. What became recreational for, you know, college kids became something I needed in order to go out. And so Mm. that's when it became the issue when I did not want to go out and be social without certain things. Yeah. And so as soon as I recognized, and God, I will never forget the feelings of, feeling so much shame of like meeting the dealer and like having a transaction and just, it was, God, it was awful, but it was like something that you couldn't not do for me. And it was the thing, you know, that just really um, allowed me to feel like I belonged still Mm -hmm. in a sense. After me graduating, I refused to take any job that wasn't executive chef level. Now, as you know, getting out of culinary school, (laughs) that is not happening. And I am not ready for that. But my, again, seeking validation and confidence um, without having skill to back it up. I use drugs as an artificial level of like confident booster. And so I could talk my way into anything. 
I could tell you, I could convince you that I am the best person to run your restaurant, even though I've never worked on the line before in my entire life. That's a and skill, by the way. That that is, is, uh, well, it's a skill until they, you realize you don't have the physical <laughs> skill in order to sustain that. Right. And so, you know, that being said, jobs did not last and nor did they come along that often. And mm-hmm. so I basically stopped working. All I did was go out and I lived off my parents' time and my lease was coming to an end and my parents were like, you're done. Like, we're, mm. like you're, you're cut off. We're not yeah. doing this anymore. And I was like, okay. And I remember getting back on the train back from Chicago, back to Michigan, tears rolling down my eyes behind my big, big sunglasses that we all like to wear. Uh-huh. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? And so a year after that, I lived in my pajamas, horribly depressed at my parents' house, trying to figure out my next move. And that next move was going to be Boston, come to find out. I remember having my rock bottom moment and taking out a pen and paper and writing out like a five-year plan. Never, Mm. never, never did that a day in my life, but like really kind of um, hunkering down and thinking about like, what the hell am I doing? And how did you begin to do that? Well, the same things that drove me to the things that prohibited me from taking a line cook job and Mm. this outward appearance of having success and having it all together What put me into that spot in Chicago was the thing that pulled me out of it in Michigan. I was Mm. like, Kristen, you are not going to be the 23-year-old person living at home in your pajamas, relying on your mom and your dad. Like, get the out and get up. And so my parents, being the most amazing people ever, they said, you listen, you're going to get a year trial. We're going to help you get your first apartment. If Boston's where you want to go, Boston it is. And so I chose Boston because it wasn't New York. It was the closest big city that I had to me that wasn't New York, that I felt like I could do this on my own. And so they were like, you get one year. We're going to pay your rent for one year. Get a job. You have three months. Get any Mm. job you want. I don't care what it is. And so I took a line cook position, I think like minimum wage at that point. I don't even remember what it was, but it was probably single digits. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they continued to help me out so long as I was proving that I was working hard. That was that was very noble. That's a great parent move. And then look what it what it yielded. I've heard you mention before about potentially going to Korea. I know you've mm-hmm. been to Asia. I know you've had several trips. Have you been to Korea yet? You know, so on Top Chef, I, I it was a very public thing. Like Kristen was adopted, and it was part of my story and part of the narrative of introducing the chefs and the characters on the show, and. I did mention, I said I wanted to go to Korea because for up until Top Chef, you know, Mm -hmm. I worked six days a week for not a lot of money. I had no time. I had no extra money to take a vacation or even think about going to Asia. Hashtag chef life. Hashtag chef life. Exactly. And so when I won, I was like, okay, well, now I have a little extra cash to play with and I can maybe like take a minute off of my job. Mm -hmm. But what happened is I, I went back into work and I just started working and opportunities came and everything just started moving again. And so I wasn't, I don't know, uh, what's the way to say it? Korea has always been this thing that I like, I, I go back and forth on, not because I don't have an interest of where I am, where I came from in my culture. Um, but it was because my life here and my family is my life. And so I never felt like I had to explore what could have been. Mm -hmm. I think about it, but I never really needed it in order to feel full. I have not gone. I feel like I will need something or something bigger beyond me will push me to go. 
And mm-hmm. until that happens, I'll know when it will feel right. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to go just because I feel like I'm supposed to go. I can dig that 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I think timing, I think uh, opportunity, I think there's so much of the story that I want to share with so many people because I've gotten so many messages about being adopted and what it means and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And it's something that I'm willing and wanting to share on a, on a bigger platform. Yeah. I'm doing the trip for me, but in a lot of ways, sometimes I, I feel like I'm doing it for us. The thing about Korea for me is, is of course I want to go and I want to vacation it like anyone else would vacation it. Sure. But I think for me, I'm placing so much expectation on it consciously and subconsciously. Yeah. Tell me what, well, like what? Meaning I'm, I feel, I feel like I'm expected to feel something like this, like mm. overwhelming something or another. And I feel like I'm supposed to walk away having been enlightened or having this moment. And I know in my right mind intelligently that if that doesn't happen, that's also okay. Yes. But I think I'm also a little bit scared that if it doesn't happen, how am I connected to my culture? Right. And mm-hmm. my culture mm-hmm. from, so many different angles is my mom and my dad. It's English, it's Hungarian, it's German, right? Yes. But how I look in my bloodline, there, there is a story there that, that has a piece to kind of explore. And I think that I don't feel like I ever want or need to meet my biological parents. Mm-hmm. I do, however, would love to see a picture because growing up being someone who doesn't look like your parents, that's something you miss. You're like, oh, oh well, where did I get my nose? Where did I get my eyes? Who are the two people that made me? Yes. Where does this height come from? Is one of them a chef? Like you tell yourself so many stories of, of why it is the way it is. And so I think expectation wise, I need to learn how to manage the potential of all the different answers that I could or could not find. That really resonates with me in a really deep way. I want to say maybe 2019 was the year of the return for African-Americans to Mm -hmm. go back to Africa, different parts of Africa, Ghana, Senegal, Nigeria, right? And mostly the coast um, where Africans who were enslaved were, you know, shipped as cargo to the United Mm -hmm. States. And so a lot of African-Americans went and they all talked about like this very transformative experience. And I've always wondered for myself, like, will I have that same experience if I go. And if I don't, you know, like you said, if I don't, I'm going to need to be okay with it. But like, you know, how will that make me look amongst my peers or just something like that, you know, a a very similar thing. And it's like, I'm an African-American. I have a very different experience than my friends who are Nigerian-American who have Mm -hmm. direct connection to the continent. I can't tell you who my ancestors are beyond a certain point in this country's history. I don't know. They were sold. They were killed. Mm-hmm. They commit, you know, committed suicide out of um, self-preservation. I don't really have a, you know, deep history. So there's also just kind of like that desire to know, but also like this America is my culture, right? This, right. this is what I know, you know, and it's from the South. It's Midwestern. And when I try to translate myself on a plate, it often comes out as Black Midwestern food, mm-hmm. you know? And so... Mm-hmm. Identity is, it's really important, you know, and I I think that whenever I decide to go to Africa and whenever you decide to go to Korea, Mm -hmm. we're going to get from it what is meant for us to have from it. Right. Period. Right. Right. So, you know, and I think we we know that. And I Mm -hmm. think the hesitation that we're both kind of talking about is we know that if we don't have a certain feeling, that's okay. 
Yeah. But it's in everyone around us. It was like, oh, don't worry about it. Like you do you. Your journey is your journey. Your story. (laughs) Live your life. All this stuff. But I'm like, but unless you know, like Mm -hmm. there is a seed in you that we do not control. Yeah. What comes out and what you feel from that seed. It is subconscious. It is involuntary. Yep. And that's where that lives. Yeah. And so, like, what if something comes up that we can't control? Like, how terrifying is that? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> I intelligently know that I sometimes make excuses and I give that too much power. I get it. I know what I'm doing. But that's what I'm saying. Like, there's going to be something bigger that pushes that move for both of us. I mean, we're chefs and we live with like our work life, which is kind of one in the same gives us a lot of room to be very calculated. It's mm-hmm. it's our job to like know how much food is coming, how much mm-hmm. food is going out, when it's going to go, what time are guests going to come, what time are we going to close. Right. Our life is very calculated. So just for the, the, the thought of having to be preparing for something that yields an, a result that we cannot anticipate, you know, like that's frightening. Right. When Jim Cook founded Samuel Adams in 1984, he knew he had a good idea, a great beer, and a thick skin. But that didn't mean it was easy to get the business off the ground. I realized after a while that it took me 20 calls to get one customer. So I got 19 rejections for every one acceptance. So every time I got a rejection, I think, well, I just got 120th of customer. I've only got 18 more to go. And that kept me going. It was like every rejection was 120th of an acceptance. That's good math. I love that. So when he did find success, Jim knew he wanted to help other entrepreneurs chasing their dreams too. That's how the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program was born. Since 2008, the program has helped thousands of passionate food and beverage craftspeople succeed so they can do what they love. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. You can also get info about upcoming events on Facebook at Brewing the American Dream or on Instagram at Sam Adams B-T-A-D. I started out as a social worker. And like so many other people in this industry, I decided later in life that I wanted to pursue my culinary dreams. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is made for people like us. Their programs are flexible enough for all kinds of students, from the career changer, like me, to the experienced industry professional looking to add new skills. With their curriculum, you get it all, the classic culinary training, plus the business foundation to take you to the next level. Check out escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Walk-in listeners, let me tell you something. I'm a pretty tall person, but I've got these small hands. And it can be tough to find kitchen gear that's ergonomically correct for a small hand. That's why I love OXO products. They design beautiful tools for any hand size. I especially like their Good Grips V-Blade Mandolin Slicer. It feels safe to use, which is really what matters with a mandolin. And it's even easy to clean. Find your perfect kitchen tool at OXO.com. And just for walk-in listeners, OXO is offering a special discount. 
Just use code ATK15 for 15% off at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Okay, Kristen, I want to kind of just go back in time a little bit more uh, about your moving to Boston. Your parents have agreed to pay your rent for a year. Um, They've given you three months to get the job that you better love because it's the one they're going to cut you off over once you've established (laughs) yourself. Uh, I know you've worked in some other restaurants before meeting the infamous Chef Barbara Lynch, who would later become your mentor. But tell us about those early days and how you came to meet Chef Barbara. So I moved to Boston with two suitcases and a couple boxes, and I was renting a room in Charlestown in this like four-bedroom house with strangers. My first job was at Top of the Hub. So mm-hmm. I eventually took a line cook position. I met my best friend, Stephanie Smart, and that's where, honestly, I learned how to be a line cook. Mm-hmm. It's also where I learned how to push myself. It's also lear- where I learned that I had an ego and I felt like I could be better than anyone. And so then I worked harder to prove that. Then I heard Guy Martin from Paris, Michelin star chef, was mm-hmm. opening a restaurant, Sensing, in Boston. And I was like, oh my God, that's where I need to go. It's housed in a hotel. I get health benefits. Like I think I was getting like $18 an hour, which was like mind-blowing to me. Right. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. And so then I started working for him. And that's where I think I learned the style of cooking and the kind of how I like to move in a kitchen. Mm -hmm. That's where that was like really set in stone. Okay. Um, You know, all the meanwhile, still going through all the garbage of being like the only woman in the kitchen Mm kind of thing. But we know what that feels like. Yes. (laughs) We don't need to go crazy (laughs) into that. But, you know, put my head down and work and just prove to my people around me and my bosses that I was worthy and I was great at my job. Sure. So then after that, I remember Stephanie was working for Barbara. Mm-hmm. She had found her way to B&G. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Barbara Lynch. And I never thought I was good enough to work for Chef Barbara Lynch, who has eight restaurants in Boston. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm terrified. Um, and so I would go. I went to visit Stephanie one day at work. Mm-hmm. She was the chef at Stir, and Barbara was sitting there. And I was like, "Oh my god!" I was like <laughs> nervous. Like I'm pretty sure I was like sweating. She on has my such face. a presence that makes you a little nervous, uh, no matter how established you are. You're just nervous, terrified, absolutely terrified. And so I walked in, and Stephanie's like cooking, and I'm like, "Okay, well, I'll help you cook, and let me help you." And Barbara's there, and then Barbara's like, "Hey, uh, you know, I want a snack of some kind." It came up, and she mm-hmm. wanted celery and peanut butter. And I was like, okay, yes, chef, I can do that for you. And I started putting the peanut butter on the celery and Stephanie was like, peel the celery. She mm-hmm. likes her celery peeled. And I was like, oh my God. So I start peeling the celery <laughs> <laughs> and then I give Barbara her celery and peanut butter. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then I think because I was so scared and I had that moment and I also was like, wow, this is who I need to work for. Mm -hmm. I think I'm ready and I feel like I'm good enough to come try it out. And so Stephanie was looking for help. And so like it all just kind of happened. And then I got to work with my best friend again. So full circle. So here we are looking at you on TV as the amazing top chef that you are. And your experience with Barbara Lynch started with peeling celery. Mm-hmm. What, for peanut butter and celery. With some <laughs> peanut butter and celery. Who would have thought it? I'm so glad we got you heard it, folks. You heard it. You heard it here first. 
So Barbara was the one who put me up for Top Chef. She was a guest chef. She was a guest chef on uh-huh. the season on season nine. I was on season ten. So they had asked her, "Hey, do you have any any women in your company that would be great on the show?" Mm-hmm. So she put forth my name along with Stephanie's, and again, timing. I think I was just ready for something to change, and I was ready for like a challenge, but I didn't want it on Top Chef. I was like, "This is not for me. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. This is scary, and it's it's again self doubting my ability, right?" Let, let's not glaze over, though, that Chef Barbara Lynch, who has 10 restaurants in Boston, I'm sure that you and Stephanie were probably her shining stars. Mm. She would put both of your names in knowing that you would leave her and the company to pursue this if right. you had said yes. Like, I think that says so much about leadership and mentorship. And if you get to know Chef Barbara, you you will know this about her immediately. She has a passion for seeing skilled people advance. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. all about her. And I really love that right. about her. She's amazing. And that's that's precisely what she did because she said, Kristen, because I kept saying, no, I'm not doing this. And she said, Kristen, our industry needs more women on television. Mm-hmm. She said, there's not enough. There's not enough of us. You need to put yourself out there. And I believe in the fact that you can do this. And so in... I will always say she has the ability to see something in someone that they cannot see in themselves. Wow. She did teach me how to cook in a lot of ways, but more so she taught me that I have more capability and more worth in myself to explore as a person and Mm -hmm. inevitably becoming a great chef. The growth that happened under her leadership, I mean... I, it would have never happened without her. And with the, and then a friendship formed and a, a, a super strong mentorship mentee. She's still my mentor. She will forever be my mentor. Yes. Regardless of anything. If I work for her, if I cook with her, it doesn't matter. She holds so much value in my life because my life would look a lot different without her. The Wall Slide. Let me just back up a little bit. I want to tell you where we're going with this conversation. This is the segment that I call the wall slide. And the wall (laughs) slide, you know what it is. You know, (laughs) you laugh because you've had some wall slides in the walk-in. You know what I'm talking about. So our listeners know it's, it's kind of those moments in life where we're either like really falling apart or we have fallen apart and we're trying to pull it together potentially. And I would imagine that telling Barbara that you... A, we're ready to do something different, but also maybe it happening at the same time she was suggesting Top Chef. Like, tell me, was that a good feeling? Were those scary feelings? Did you not want to disappoint your mentor? Like, tell me what was going on in your head at that moment. All of the above. Mm. It was, oh my God, I'm so scared to step out of my comfort zone. But if I don't, then I'm going to be just stuck here right where I am. And I'm not okay with that either. Mm-hmm. I hadn't learned the skill of being uncomfortable to find greatness. Mm. I hadn't learned that yet. And so that was like the first step into it. The other side of, oh my God, what if, what if I totally do a terrible job and I disappoint my family, my friends, I'm going to be so embarrassed. Barbara's going to be so disappointed. She put me on there because she (laughs) thought I could do a good job and represent her and this company and me and all this stuff. What if I don't do well? All of that went away, though, the second you start filming because you don't have mind space and emotional Mm -hmm. space to carry anything other than just a ball of nerves. I can still feel the ball. I heard it just now when you were trying to tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
it's the feeling there's just something there. It, it, it creates, um, a deep anxiety. Yeah. Um, but you know, yeah, I was scared of, of disappointing everyone. I was scared of letting people mm-hmm. down. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the anxiety that you've expressed in our talk today stems from being extremely visible and in public. Mm-hmm. It really came out, you know, during your modeling years mm-hmm. and how you feel about, you know, like being seen. I know that like a part of you wants to be seen, I feel. And maybe there's a part of you that like, absolutely like, don't even look at me. Like, just turn your freaking head. Don't look at me. You know what it is? It's when I don't feel like I have a purpose to be seen mm-hmm. or I'm not doing something of purpose that mm-hmm. I feel really like a fish out of water. And so you could put me in front of a million people, but give me a knife and a cooking platform and I'll be just fine. Throw me in the middle of a busy street with 10 people and I get really anxious. I need to be doing something. I will always remember riding the green line from my apartment to mm-hmm. work, uh, the E-line to Prudential Center to go to Top of the Hub. And riding the subway, part of me just, I would have rather walked five miles in the snow than mm-hmm. to have gotten on the subway because my social anxiety was really, really bad on public transportation. Like I'd have mm. to psych myself out to get on the train. Yeah. I think it's gotten better because I've gotten older and I feel like maybe I understand it a little bit more and I can mm-hmm. lean into the fact that it does make me feel uncomfortable as opposed to trying to make it stop being uncomfortable. Now I just am like, well, it is what it is and this is how I feel and what are you going to do about it? Like I, I can't yeah. do anything about it. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's a fear of being judged. It's a, mm-hmm. And that comes from me judging myself so much. No mm-hmm. one else gives a flying <laughs> how I walk down the street. But in my right. brain, I judge myself so hard way back in the day yeah. of what I look like and how I moved through the world that I feel like mm-hmm. other people would do the same to me. So I think that's where it really comes from. And I don't, it'll never go away. And I'm not trying to make it go away. I'm just, I've learned how to manage it. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I think that's an important part of just growing up, even just growing up within adulthood is accepting the parts of you that the good, bad, the ugly, mm-hmm. you know, Absolutely. you know, it's it's so important. They should have put that on the checklist of things that happen when one starts adulting. Right. <laughs> this, yes. this adulting manual that's out here in these streets these days is highly inaccurate. Yeah. Like you, you left some stuff out. <laughs> you left a lot you of stuff out. A lot of stuff out. <laughs> After you won Top Chef, what what happened? Tell me about the series of events after that. You won. What did life look like when you came back from Top Chef and in Boston? Life turned right upside down and I had to figure out how to catch up. Mm -hmm. It was so weird. People stopping me and recognizing me and saying hello. It was bizarre to have people come in and want pictures. Again, super anxious (laughs) around people I don't know. And honestly, I think that was the greatest therapy for me. Um, Mm -hmm. yes, winning was great, but I think the process of events that happened afterwards was a real life therapy moment to figure out how I can better operate in a world that I do not have full control over my surroundings. Yes. And that's when I just was like, okay, this is all good. And I, and I became, I became a person that liked a little bit of spontaneity, a little bit of surprise, some, Mm -hmm. some elements that, you know, I wasn't in control of. And that was fun for me. And so I got to travel and I got to cook in all these different places. All of a sudden I'm speaking in front of people and I'm like doing all these things that I would have never dreamed I could have ever done. Getting on an airplane 
and going and using my passport to go cook. What? And like yeah. to have that be my life now is unreal. It is absolutely, and I remain forever grateful. And I, girl, you got me a little misty yeah. over here. Good grief. And yeah, I, what a moment. I will always remain in a space of gratitude because I never knew it could happen to me. Look at you giving your own self validation from your own yes. self. Yes. You go. Yes. And Come it, on, kids. I love it. It did a lot. It really did a lot for my level of confidence and mm-hmm. for my self-worth. And so like life just happened and all of a sudden there's, you know, opportunities to do, you know, a book and a TV show and all these different things. And I'm like, yes, I want to do all these things. And yes, it feels uncomfortable. And yes, it's absolutely terrifying to have to speak in front of anybody and give a speech that's supposed to motivate and inspire. And you're like, oh God. (laughs) But I learned, I learned all I can do is tell my story and hopefully it resonates and that's it. And I don't have to please everybody along the way. Super proud of you. Thank Good you. Grief. Thank you. <laughs> Air hugs, boy. Air hugs. A moment in the walk-in. This is my favorite segment. It's called A Moment in the Walk-In. And I'm sure you and Steph have had moments where you had to pull each other in the walk-in and be like, hey, hey, girl, hey, <laughs> let me, let me, let me drop this bug in your ear real quick. So I want you to come into the walk-in with me for a moment. I want to ask you how you have made so many life decisions and transitions for a young woman, right? And from what I've heard in our talk today, you really have had to make some decisions that felt uncomfortable and unpopular. But how do you know when it's time to transition Mm. to the next thing? And and has the way you made that decision in the past differed from how you make that decision now or wow. those decisions yeah. now? I think it's a good thing that I don't have the magical solution, one sentence answer to say, this is how I know. For me, I live in, will always, always live in the space of, I will hear every opportunity. I will take the majority of opportunities Mm-hmm. I will be firm when I say no to opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I just, I listen to my gut and I feel like our instinct and our ability to know what's right and wrong without our head is mm-hmm. a magical place to live. That being said, if I end up going down a path or a journey where I all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I made the wrong decision, mm-hmm. I'll take myself out of it. Mm. I can't worry about disappointing someone's feelings. I can't worry about the what ifs. Ultimately, it is a self-preservation and it is a long game. Our careers are a long game. Our personal health is a long game. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, you know, and sometimes I promise you, I have probably pulled myself out of a really great place, a really good Mm -hmm. opportunity because my gut is something whether I convinced myself in some way that it's not the right decision, this is not Mm -hmm. the right job I should take. I've probably missed out on some really cool things too. But I think for me, it's all about timing too. It's about how much time you're willing to give to certain things at a certain place in your life. So Mm -hmm. the greatest, most beautiful opportunity, if my family needed me, that's got to wait then. You know, family's going to come first. That opportunity is going to have to sit there. And if it's there when I return, fantastic. Sure. For me... I think my biggest like love language is time and quality Mm -hmm. time with those that I care about. And it's something that I also needed to learn how to give back. 
that time to somebody else. I really love that answer to that. And I I know that that stems from probably mostly where you are in life right now. But let's go back to younger Kristen that had more at stake, right? Before you could really be as selective about opportunities or not, you know, because now you're famous and you can say (laughs) no and someone else will come behind and take another, give another shot, right? But like when you didn't have that, Mm -hmm. when you couldn't do that, like what were the ways in which you went within to measure like which mm-hmm. opportunities? Yeah. I mean, because Bar- I think working with Chef Barbara Lynch could be one of those. Like a lot of us would think like, why wouldn't you want, why wouldn't you stay there forever? Right. You know, like that's a thing. But, you know, there was more at stake, right? Yeah. You had to, you had to pay your bills because mm-hmm. your parents weren't going to continue to do it. Well, how were you navigating decisions at that time? You know, so when I, very specific example, when, when I was working at Stir, Top Chef happened. I won. I was promoted to Chef de Cuisine of Monton, the super fancy restaurant. And mm. I was there. I didn't even make it a year. Because what ended mm. up happening is that I literally woke up one day and I went to work. It was February. It was winter. I remember it. It's clear as day. I can still feel the weather. And I went to work and Barbara's car was sitting right out front on Congress Street. And so mm. I hop in her little white Fiat. I'm like, Chef. I can't do it. I, I can't do this anymore. I think I have to leave. And I think what happened was I didn't give myself time to think about what I was doing. I mm-hmm. just acted on what I felt. And she was there at the right time. She was there because if she wasn't there and I had to wait to tell her, I don't know if I would have told her right away. Right. Um, for a multitude of different reasons, that restaurant was not right for me and I was not right for that restaurant. It was not mm-hmm. a healthy place. Yeah. So I think that I've learned to act quickly on my feelings, which sometimes don't yield the best results, but mm-hmm. I have to, because if I give myself too much room, I'm going to convince myself otherwise, mm. you know? And then as we look at different opportunities, if, as they've come post top chef, and even to this day, my manager, I've been with her for many, many years. And she told me early on in my career, after I was saying yes to everything, saying yes and yes and yes. We put together this analogy that made it very clear to me on what I needed to say no to. She said, Kristen, one thing that I hate, and maybe you can relate, is like the sprinkle of parsley everywhere on every plate. It's on the rim. It's all, it's like, doesn't even add value to anything. You can't taste it. It just is a mess and it gets stuck in your teeth and it becomes annoying. And she said, don't be the sprinkle of parsley. You want to be the intentional leaf of parsley. Mm. Mm. And I was like, wow, in order to be relevant, I don't have to say yes to everything. I have to be selective and understand what it's what saying yes to that is going to do for the next thing. So if I say yes, yes to hawking a really food product, mm-hmm. I'm going to not get that great food product because they're going to realize that I'm hawking a really awful one. So yeah. say no to that, regardless of what money comes with it, and wait for the right one. And instead of saying yes to the money, you say yes to the partnership and you say yes mm-hmm. to the brand. And then yes. that's how I, that is how I move forward to this day, which jobs I want and which ones I don't. That's good advice right there. That yeah. parsley bit. Right. It, I'm going to be quoting you on, or Tori on that forever. It's great. It honestly. That's great. Mm-hmm. Because you get lost if you're just sprinkling everywhere. If you're just at every event, you're cooking mm-hmm. and everything, you're on everything, you're everywhere. You get lost. All of a sudden you become so normal to see that you become invisible. 
in a lot you're of ways. You're talking to me, girl. I just want you to know I, you are talking to me right now when you're telling <laughs> this Parsi story because I got a problem with the yeses and the mm-hmm. noes. I promise you that you will find yourself saying no more often and mm-hmm. you are going to find more opportunities because of that. All right. I believe it. It I is. It. It's making, terrifying. Making space, it's, making room for the exactly. right things. Yeah, it's yes, terrifying. It. it really is terrifying. Because when we look at our resume from top to bottom, mm-hmm. and in 10 years, we're going to look back at every every podcast we did, every guest chef dinner we did, every trip we took, yeah. and we write it all down, and you're going to look at it. And I don't want to see a bunch of busy noise. I want to yes. see things that are worth something, that, that mm-hmm. added value to my yes. life in some form. Well, with that being said, I want to just thank you for feeling that the walk-in is something that can add value to your life because it definitely added value to my life today, 100%. I'm so happy to see you again, Kristen. I'm always so, so, so proud of you. (laughs) Keep in touch. Mm -hmm. Let's just like keep in touch, you know, because Michigan girls need to stick together because we're the best. I said it. (laughs) And I just always want to know what's going on with you, you know, like... I love to just hear, I want to hear about your wins. And likewise, likewise, very proud of you and very, I mean, honestly, like we will remind each other often of being the parsley leaf. Like it's very important to hear it and it's yes. important to say it. That's right. Yeah. If you see me out here um, doing tightrope commercials, you're like, L, get that parsley off the girl. <laughs> yes. Get out of there. Get out of there. Kristen, I really would love for you to just take one second and tell everyone what's going on with you right now. Where can we find you? Because we're always looking for you. So we have the restaurant Arlo Gray in Austin, Texas, my cookbook, Kristen Kish Cooking Recipes and Techniques, and my new TV show on True TV, which is called Fast Foodies, new episode every Thursday. Every Thursday. Check it out. Awesome. Chef Kristen Kish, thank you so much for stepping into the walk-in with you, girl. It's so nice to see you. Um, And I look forward to seeing you again. It's not our last time. We'll be hanging out again soon. So thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. One more quick thing. If you like the walk-in and you want more of these real and unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, L. Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Caitlin Kelleher. Our producers include Ken Margolis, Caroline Rickert, and Yumi Araki. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Additional engineering by Samantha Gatsik. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Jennifer Cuccidi is our intern. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Escoffier and Samuel Adams. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. 
We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.